Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Eric Gomez. I'm a senior fellow here, and I'm very excited to moderate today's book forum discussion of Ali Wine's new America Great Power Opportunity, uh, revitalizing US foreign policy to meet the challenges of strategic competition. Here is my heavily highlighted and dog-eared and note-taken copy. Um, we also have copies available for purchase outside if you would like to take one, or well, purchase one and then take one. Um, <laughs> I've known Ali for a long time. Um, we were just talking about the last time he thought he was at Cato before the pandemic for an event. Um, my first introduction to his work on great power competition came actually during a Cato Institute forum at the, or a roundtable discussion at the American Political Science Association. And Ali had a lot of great things to say about great power competition and why it was a flawed concept and all this other manner of things. And I was really impressed at it. Uh, so when I got the email about a year later that um, he had a book on the subject and I was asked to review the manuscript, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense that <laughs> he had such great thoughts thought out. Um, and as I was reading this a year ago, I just knew I wanted to have a conversation of it here because it's such a rich and valuable book. It offers a great critique of the great power competition concept that has dominated Washington discourse uh, since the, Trump, the early years of the Trump administration. Um, he ably demonstrates that great power competition as many folks like me are fond of saying is not a strategy. Um, it has no real endpoint. it has no real goal. It's hard to judge success or failure. Um, and instead, uh, you can use great power competition to apply to a lot of things. Uh, my favorite example of this is when Joe Biden went to a electric car factory um, and was asked why he was there. Uh, he said, this is how we win the competition for the 21st century before sort of driving off in the car. And I, I don't know what the hell that's supposed to mean. Um, it doesn't seem like it makes much sense to me. But in this world, I think America's great power competition, or America's great power opportunity, the book we're discussing today, is a breath of fresh air that comprehensively assesses the concept, uh, reveals its flaws, and offers some practical steps to have a better way forward. Um, and I think we'll set a good foundation for US relations with Russia and China going forward. So thank you, Ali, for coming. Um, he is the author of the book and a senior analyst at the Eurasia Group. Joining us today are two very incredibly smart people, Emma Ashford and Zach Cooper. Emma is an adjunct assistant professor at Georgetown University. Zach is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. One last housekeeping note, each speaker will have 15 minutes for prepared remarks, followed by a moderated Q&A session. For those watching online, you can either submit questions via the Slido screen on the Cato Institute website if you're watching there, or by using the hashtag CatoFP, capital C, capital FP, um, if you're watching on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube. And with that, Ali, please uh, start us off. You want me to start there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I have to adjust this down just a little bit. I could quite a lot. Let me see. Can everybody, can everybody hear me okay? Okay. I probably don't even need to use this, but I'll, I'll use it anyway. Um, uh, Eric, thank you uh, so much for, uh, for having me. It's a real privilege to be back. So the last time I was back, as you said, I was, I was attending, I think, the event that you referred to, or the event that I attended. It was in the main auditorium, but this is a new space, but a really beautiful space. Uh, wonderful to be back. Uh, so thank you so much for having me. And 
And I want to say, uh, Emma and Zach, thank you so much. Uh, Emma and Zach are friends, they're mentors, and really in any discussion of American grand strategy, U.S. foreign policy, they're uh, two of the luminaries. And so it's a real, and they both are quoted in the book, um, not, just, not just idle praise. I quote uh, both of them uh, in the book, uh, and they really are uh, really, really luminaries in this field. So uh, I'm going to try, brevity is not one of my strong suits. I am going to try to stay within my, my 15 minutes of allotted time. And, and you can start giving me signals if I'm approaching uh, that threshold. But my primary purpose really today is to, to learn. It's to engage. Uh, it's to refine my own thinking. I'm not here to uh, proselytize. I, I do have certain judgments that I render in the book, but I really am here to, to learn and engage with, with all of you. Um, so what I want to do first before getting to the critique that I set forth in the book and also a discussion of what I think America's great power opportunity is, I want to talk a little bit about just the genesis of the term, the genesis of this construct or the, the framework, um, kind of the origin story of, of great power competition. And I think that the end of the Cold War is as good a place to begin as any. Uh, I, I came of age in, uh, in the 90s, and it was, it was a really exuberant time. Uh, the U.S. economy is booming. The Soviet Union has collapsed. It's the heady 1990s. And I think you could kind of sort of bookend this period of this kind of triumphalism uh, between, say, the end of the, the Cold War and the onset of the global financial crisis in 2008. Uh, and yet, for all of that triumphalism, that perhaps democracy is going to be inexorably ascendant, capitalism is going to be inexorably ascendant, the Soviet Union is gone, lurking beneath that triumphalism, both in the policymaking community and also, I, I think, to a large extent, in the analytical community as well, there is a certain measure of disquiet that you begin to see in the early 1990s. Because the Soviet Union, it's true, had been America's principal adversary, its existential adversary for the better part of half a century, but that existential adversary had also disciplined US foreign policy and structured US foreign policy for the better part of half a century. And so with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States in one fell swoop also lost the principal ballast that had structured its foreign policy for a long time. And so there is a sense in the foreign policy community Yes, we've won this momentous victory, but now how are we going to discipline our foreign policy? How are we going to structure our foreign policy if we don't have this large overarching external competitor? And so I think that between, you can say, roughly 1990 and about the mid-2010s, so about a quarter century period, uh, there's a lot of searching of what is going to be the next force, the next country, the next phenomenon to discipline U.S. foreign policy. And it's interesting to actually kind of run through, uh, sort of run through some of the discussions that the U.S. foreign policy community had up until about the mid-2010s. So in the 1990s, the United States was relatively so powerful and so preeminent that a lot of the discussions in the US foreign policy community asked, what exactly do we do with this extraordinary inheritance of power? We have so much power, we don't know what to do with it. That was actually a very prevalent strain of commentary in the 1990s. Then in the 2000s, obviously, after the terrorist attacks of 9-11, uh, counterterrorism and counterinsurgency, they become ballast for US foreign policy but they're partial ballasts uh, at best. They don't rise to the level of uh, threats posed by a nation state. They don't really galvanize the, the public and the foreign policy establishment in the same way. And as the decade wears on, uh, public disillusionment with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq grows, uh, elite disenchantment with the wars grows, and, and that ballast kind of fizzles away. Uh, and certainly with the arrival of the Obama administration, which explicitly comes into office saying, well, we've been too preoccupied with counterterrorism. We need to find a new orienting ballast. And then in sort of the first half of the 2010s, there kind of, it's sort of a period of experimentation. So there's the pivot to Asia, there's some experiments at sort of managing great power frictions and managing transnational challenges, perhaps exploring certain avenues for great power cooperation. But again, nothing really sticks in the way that the threat from an overarching competitor does. 
And then you have a real inflection point in 2014 with Russia's incursion into Ukraine and its subsequent annexation of Crimea. So in terms of when I, I at least think great power competition really begins to, in a serious way, sort of reemerge into the lexicon, the policymaking lexicon, the analytical lexicon, 2014 is a critical inflection point. And then sort of occurring in parallel to Russia's annexation of Crimea, you have kind of China's sort of slow drip, steady reclamation of land in the South China Sea. And so the combination of that really that discrete shock, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, its annexation of Crimea, and then this slow drip phenomenon of Chinese land reclamation of the Chinese in the South China Sea, it starts bringing this term or this construct or this framework of great power competition very much into the fore of uh, sophisticated uh, discussions between uh, esteemed foreign policy experts. It also starts gaining traction in the US government, although importantly, during the second half of the Obama administration, it doesn't necessarily diffuse across an interagency basis. It starts gaining some traction in the Pentagon. There's some debates about it in the Pentagon, but it really doesn't get that much traction outside. And in fact, uh, it elicits some pushback from outside of the Pentagon. So that's kind of a very sort of uh, abbreviated tour of kind of sort of the pre-Trump administration uh, thinking about great power competition. And then of course, with the arrival of the Trump administration, you have two high level documents being published in, in close proximity to one another. You have the national security strategy that's published in December of 2017. You have the national defense strategy published just a month later in January, 2018. And these two documents, they really take a term that had been slowly percolating and it had slowly been gaining momentum and they really make it achieve escape velocity. And when I first started writing the book in earnest in 2019, a great power competition was not only uh, a term that had achieved enormous uh, traction uh, in the policymaking establishment, it had gained an enormous amount of uh, bipartisan traction on Capitol Hill, and it really had actually come to dominate mainstream discourse. So at, at think tank events, uh, in op-eds, in essays, and in, in a city such as ours, in which you know, ideological acrimony and rancor are so pronounced, in which it's very difficult to gain consensus on almost anything, I was really impressed. And I think it's a credit to the architects, uh, the intellectual architects of great power competition, um, in this kind of ideologically acrimonious environment, for a high-level construct to achieve that level of traction, so that it achieves traction across the interagency basis in the US government, it comes to dominate think tank conversations, and it really also comes to anchor just mainstream conversations. It's, it's a very, very impressive accomplishment. And I think that what great power competition does, it ref the reason I think it's come to enjoy its present centrality is it reflects this sort of interesting combination of strategic anxiety on the one hand, but a certain bureaucratic comfort on the other hand. Strategic anxiety, because of course, we see that China and Russia are now, they're much more capable of pushing back, they're much more willing to push back, but there's a certain bureaucratic comfort that, aha, We've watched this movie before. The United States has dealt with big external competitors before, and it's won in those confrontations. So Imperial Japan suffers a military defeat. Nazi Germany suffers a military defeat. Soviet Union collapses in spectacular fashion after a nearly half-century-long struggle. And so I think that there's a sense with a resurgent China and an irredentist Russia that, hey, we've dealt with major external competitors before. We've been victorious in those confrontations. And so we at least, we feel in theory that we have a familiar playbook upon which we can draw. So I think again, why it's come to achieve its present centrality, strategic anxiety on the one hand, but a certain sense that, hey, we have a familiar playbook. And what I want to do, Eric, how am I doing on time, by the way? Uh, oh, good, good, okay. Um, so brevity is not one of my strong suits, neither is talking slowly, but there's a lot that I want to pack in. So I'll, I'll, do, my, I'll do my best uh, with the 10 minutes that I have left. Um, 
So what I want to do now is sort of really get to the, the body of the book. And so America's great power opportunity, as, as Eric alluded to, great power opportunity, it's, it's sort of a play on the term great power competition. Uh, and the reason it ended up being great power opportunity as opposed to great power competition was I initially conceived of the book as actually not even being a book. I thought it was going to be just sort of a monograph or maybe a lengthy essay. And it was initially conceived as just setting forth a critique of great power competition. And so I drafted up the critique, which comprises the body of the book, and I started circulating it around to, um, to various you know, professors, uh, think tank colleagues, just others whose judgment I really value. And you know, the reactions were, okay, you've sold me on some of your critiques, not on others. I can kind of see where you're going. But the question that kept coming up again and again and again was, Ali, if not great power competition to orient US foreign policy, then what? What is your framework? What is the alternative? And it, it occurred to me, that as a writer, an author, as an analyst, the more vigorously you critique a prevailing paradigm, particularly one that enjoys such widespread traction, the more of a responsibility you have uh, to yourself, and I think to those who might listen to you, to offer an alternative, or just to be honest and say, I tried, I thought, and I wasn't able to come up with an alternative. But I think it, it's not responsible to just offer a critique and then just say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna exit, exit the stage. That's not responsible. And so the last chapter of the book, if, if you read it, it's basically articulate certain principles that I hope will go some way towards informing a, a great power opportunity, an alternative grand strategy. Uh, now, in terms of the, the, the body of the, the book and really which sets forth this critique of great power competition, um, I hasten to note that great, I make a distinction between thinking about great power competition descriptively and great power competition prescriptively. That is, thinking about great power competition as a characterization of the prevailing geopolitical environment and thinking about it as a blueprint for US foreign policy. Uh, I make clear in the outset of the book, and I, and I hasten to make cl uh, clear here as well, I think that descriptively, great power competition has a lot to recommend it. I don't think it captures necessarily all of geopolitics, and I don't think, frankly, that any one construct could, but it certainly distills descriptively. It does distill very important trends. So what does great power competition encapsulate? It recognizes that interstate competition has never gone away. Interstate competition, it is an enduring phenomena, at least it has been since the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. It's waxed and waned in intensity, but interstate competition, it's an enduring phenomenon. It has been for a while. Great power competition also recognizes the relative diminution in US influence. Yes, the United States is still the world's preeminent power, but relatively, it's not as influential as it was at the end of the Cold War, uh, at the turn of the century, or even a decade ago. And it recognizes, therefore, that if America's relative influence is declining, that the influence of its competitors, relatively, is rising. And great power competition rightly focuses on America's two principal competitors, uh, as I mentioned earlier, China and Russia. So descriptively, again, it doesn't capture everything, but it captures a lot, and I think it does so in a pithy way. And it's a really, it's a credit to the architects of great power competition that they were able to come up with a pithy encapsulation that does capture so much. And so I think that descriptively, it captures a lot. The concern I have is about taking description and making it into prescription. And I think it's very important that we don't conflate the two. What are some of the concerns I have about taking that description and advancing it as a policy framework? I'll, I'll offer three broad critiques. The first is that if you have a foreign policy that maybe not exclusively, but is in significant measure oriented around responding to your competitors, from the get-go, intrinsically, you're allowing your competitors to dictate the terms of competition. So the United States says to itself, what is China going to do? How do we respond? What is Russia going to do? How do we respond? Uh, how are China and Russia going to deepen their relationship? How do we respond? And so you almost from the get-go are placing yourself in a reactionary defensive mode 
where I, whereas I think that it's very important for the United States not only to signal confidence to Americans, but to signal confidence to its allies and partners that rather than being reactionary and defensive, that it be proactive and confident. Uh, and what I, what I discovered during the course of my research, during the course of interviews that I did for the book, is that when I would ask people, what does great power competition mean prescriptively? What are its implications for US foreign policy? We, we sort of agree at the 30,000 foot level that the United States on one hand, predominantly competing with China and Russia, but what are the real operational implications of this construct for US foreign policy? What I've noticed is that in, the, in recent years, the interpretations have grown steadily more and more maximalist, steadily more and more encompassing to the point now that it's very common to hear great power competition means that the United States is competing with Russia, with uh, China and Russia. It's in a long-term competition, a systemic competition, a globe-spanning competition to determine nothing less than the future of world order. Now, that proposition may be true. You may agree with that proposition. The trouble is when you have a problem statement or a diagnosis that is so sweeping, that is so maximalist, it doesn't really tell you what to do. The real question is, what shouldn't you do as the United States? If your mandate is to determine the future of world order, what mandate, what policy couldn't conceivably fit under that umbrella? And I think that it's very important. The essence of strategy is trade-offs. The essence of strategy is accepting difficult trade-offs. And even though the United States is the world's preeminent power, the preponderance of, a preponderance of power doesn't obviate the necessity for strategic choice. And the United States, it has a little bit more freedom of foreign policy maneuver than most other countries. But the United States is not immune from the necessity for strategic choice, from the necessity to make difficult choices. And I think it's very important that we be strategically disciplined. Now, in response to that first critique about getting drawn into this kind of steadily more expansive maximalist competition, there would seem to be an obvious historical rebuttal, namely the Cold War. The Cold War, it was a long struggle, nearly half a century. It was globe-spanning, it was multifaceted, and as I just said at the outset, the Soviet Union lost in pretty spectacular fashion. Now, there are a number of reasons why I think that the, the analogy between the Cold War and, and the present geopolitical environment, a number of reasons why I think that the analogy is strained, but in terms of what the implications are for strategic discipline, the Soviet Union at the peak of its economic power, remember at the peak of its economic power, if you, if you interview economic historians, there's some quibbles about the exact number, but most economic historians calculate that at the zenith of its economic power, the Soviet Union's GDP was something on the order of 40 to 45% as large as that of the United States at its peak. Leaving aside Russia, China already, its economy is roughly about 80% as large as that of the United States. And yes, it's dealing with zero COVID, it's dealing with the confluence of growth headwinds, but it's a much more formidable economic competitor. And when you're dealing with uh, competitors that are that much more economically capable and that much more integrated into the global economy, it behooves you to be that much more strategically disciplined. So the first critique uh, is to avoid getting uh, a reactive defensive foreign policy and avoid getting lulled into a more expansive maximalist competition. Uh, the second critique is actually one that I think should be a source of quiet confidence for the United States. And that is, if the mistake that we made in the sort of the heady years after the Cold War was to underestimate the potential of the Chinas and the Russias of the world to come back and challenge US influence, complacence is wrong, but so is consternation. And I fear that the pendulum might be overcorrecting in the direction of consternation. Uh, a number of observers have quipped about China and Russia that they're not two feet tall, but they're not necessarily 10 feet tall either when it comes to strategy. They're not immune from strategic mistakes. And I think that we've seen both of them make some pretty significant strategic mistakes. You look at Russia, no, it hasn't been consigned to global pariah status with this invasion of Ukraine, but it certainly has undercut its strategic prospects. It's more beholden to China now. It's given NATO a new lease on life. It's given the transatlantic project a new lease on life. 
And even though it's presently blunting the impact of sanctions, those sanctions over the medium to long term, they are going to curtail Russia's ability to access capital and technology that it will require for, for its long-term economic development. So has Russia advanced its vital national interest with its invasion of Ukraine? Has Russia acted in a genuinely strategic way? My, my thinking would be no. Now, China, what about China? Now, China is not as blundering as Russia. I think it's less risk tolerant than Russia. It's far more deeply integrated into the global economy. But I think that China's behavior as well belies this notion that it's something of a strategic grandmaster that sees decades into the future, that's sort of immune to strategic hubris. Um, and if you look at sort of China's major power relationships, with the exception of its relationship with Russia, most of its relationships are either stagnating or deteriorating. So the second critique is, we don't want to fuel that anxiety and that defensiveness by aggrandizing needlessly the competitive acumen of our principal competitors. The third and final critique, and then I'll stop because I recognize I probably am approaching time. Uh, the third and final critique of great power uh, competition is a policy framework. Again, not as a descriptive framework, but as a policy framework is, uh, and this is, an, and I should say, this is a, it's an uncomfortable critique to articulate. It's an unpalatable, it's an unsavory critique to articulate when you see uh, the cruelty that Russia is visiting upon Ukraine, when you see uh, the really destabilizing uh, provocative maneuvers that China is conducting vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Uh, so I just, I wrote the afterword to the book shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine. I had prepared the manuscript. I sent it off to my editor. I was getting ready to enter the copy editing stage and then Russia invaded Ukraine. Well, I said, well, I said to my editor, I said, I have to do something. I can't submit a book to the publisher that doesn't mention that Russia's invaded Ukraine. So I had to, I had to write an afterword to the book. And as I was writing the afterword to the book, I was watching, as we all were, sort of Russia's you know, crimes playing out in Ukraine. And I wanted to, in, in this afterword, I wanted to see if I could articulate and present a compelling scenario in which the United States could advance its vital national interests solely in alignment with like-minded countries. Could the United States find a way of bypassing China and Russia, placing them in a kind of a geopolitical closet, taking away the key and saying, look, we don't like your foreign policy. We don't like how you conduct yourself at home. So we're not going to have to work with you. We're not going to have to engage with you. But I think that China and Russia, they're just, they're too large. If you look at their proportions, the idea that they can be locked away in a geopolitical closet, that they can be detached from the core of geopolitics, it just doesn't strike me as being plausible. And so that means that whether we think about mitigating pandemic disease, whether we think about combating climate change, whether we think about shoring up macroeconomic stability, and we can go on and on and on, uh, even if we hold our nose, even if we sort of avert our gaze when we do this, we do have to preserve some baseline of cooperative space with these two competitors, even if we don't like to do so. Um, and when I think about diplomacy or engagement or, or uh, interaction, to me, those are not pejorative terms. They're not, they're, they strike me as being value agnostic terms. You conduct diplomacy with countries you like, you conduct diplomacy with countries about whom you have some reservations, you conduct diplomacy with adversaries, not necessarily because you want to, not necessarily because you believe that it will bear fruit, but because you recognize its foundational necessity. The United States cannot advance its vital national interests alone. It cannot advance its vital national interests solely in alignment with like-minded countries. And so even if we hold our nose, even if we recoil somewhat, I think we have to preserve that cooperative space. So with that, uh, maybe I can discuss the, the great power opportunity in the Q&A period, but I've probably exhausted my time. Uh, so with that, uh, uh, Eric, thank you so much, uh, and Emma and Zach. Uh, I'm really, really uh, so honored that you're here, eager to, uh, to learn from both of you and to engage with both of you. Thanks very much. Great. Well, uh, thanks to Ali for, for you know, giving us a great overview of, of his book. It's a genuine pleasure to be back here at the Cato Institute. 
I am even shorter than our last speaker. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think this is a really great book. Um, and one of the things that I particularly appreciate about it is, you know, Ali alluded to the fact that he had a number of conversations with people like myself, like loads of others in DC and elsewhere throughout the process. Um, and one of the things that I think really comes through in this book is that it is as much a conversation with the debates that are actually happening over US foreign policy, US brand strategy, um, it's not just itself descriptive. Um, it helps us to get a real feel for this debate um, you know, and what it is that we're actually talking about. Um, and I'm particularly struck when, when looking through this again today, I was particularly struck by the, the prefaces or the additions to the book. Um, in the book, Ali has acknowledgments that reference the fact that this book was written during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, he's got a preface that's about the shifts in US foreign policy during the Trump administration that were somewhat unprecedented. Um, chapter one, which leads with uh, the fall of Kabul just happened last week. Um, and then there's the postscript which says, oh yeah, and you know, three months later, Russia invaded Ukraine. So, um, you know, the, the prefaces and the postscript, I think, really give you a feel for the period in which this, this book was written. And it is, I think, notable just how tumultuous a period this has been over the last few years in foreign policy. Um, and I think, you know, what, what Ali's done really well here is he's done a great job writing a book that looks at the current moment, looks at the big challenges of, of this tumultuous moment, um, and rather than sort of taking a very paradigmatic stance on it and saying, you know, this is the thing we have to do, you know, my opinion is right, um, instead of focusing on the mistakes that have been made in US foreign policy, instead of arguing about terminology, um, instead he provides this, this overview of what is the dilemma for US foreign policymakers and how might they think about solving it. Um, and if you'll forgive me, I just wanna read a very short passage from the book because I think it really does in a nutshell sum up what he's trying to do here. Um, so quote, the status Washington enjoyed between the early 1990s and the onset of the global financial crisis was highly aberrant. Even if it had avoided self-inflicted strategic errors, the rise of the rest, the growing heft of non-state actors and the proliferation of crises would have cumulatively reduced America's margin of preeminence. A resurgent China and revanchist Russia then are not avoidable consequences of misguided US diplomacy as much as the expected outcomes of relative US decline. Going forward, the United States will increasingly have to grapple with an uncomfortable question. What level of influence can it allow its competitors to achieve and how will it adapt if and as their influence extends? Um, and I think that really is in a nutshell what, what the book is doing is saying here we are, you know, we are somewhere between the unipolar moment of the 1990s and whatever the future holds for us, how do policymakers think about this? And the book is essentially an argument that the response from the US, the response from policymakers shouldn't be reactive that we in the US should be thinking about ourselves. We shouldn't be thinking about turning ourselves into another Russia or China to compete with them. We should be thinking about domestic renewal and how best to build on our own strengths. Um, and so I think that's broadly accurate. 
Um, I think, you know, to accept the notion that great power competition is the motivating factor for U.S. policy, um, particularly for U.S. domestic political changes, I think really accepts China and Russia's premise. It accepts the notion that we're headed into something like a new cold or even hot war, um, rather than thinking about the ways that we might want to capitalize on this, this new century. And so I really like the way that this is framed. Um, you know, and one, one of the ways that Ali puts it in the book is he says the US should become the most dynamic version of its best self. Um, and I'm saving that one for my midlife crisis. <laughs> um, but if you'll forgive me, I do also have some friendly criticisms for the book, or perhaps to, to think about as you move towards your, your next work. Um, so for all that I said, the book isn't set, situated within the paradigms of foreign policy or grand strategy. Um, I think that might be somewhat a mistake. Um, in theory, I think this approach of domestic renewal um, could actually work for different varieties of US grand strategy. I think there could be a version of this um, that also focuses on military primacy, though I'm not sure how well it would work. And I think there's a version of this that could work pretty well with some version of restraint. Um, but I think in practice, once you get down from the very highest abstract level, there are trade-offs and decisions that need to be made about the conduct of foreign policy. Um, and I think that's where the book somewhat shrinks from making those, those hard decisions. Um, so, you know, a few questions, you know, that aren't answered in the book, right? What are U.S. red lines? Is the U.S. going to fight to defend Taiwan, to fight to defend Ukraine? Um, what does our military posture look like? What do we do when the principles in here conflict? Um, you know, what happens when a foreign policy for the middle class conflicts with the trade policy um, that we really need for our foreign policy? Now, these are not easy questions, and I don't particularly fault Ali for not answering them because I think they're questions that everybody's wrestling with at the moment. Um, but I, I do think that perhaps not addressing them at all um, is somewhat of a mistake. Um, I also think perhaps it's a mistake to move fully past an analysis of the mistakes that we have made in US foreign policy during the unipolar moment. Um, for example, you know, Ali talks about how US foreign policy helped to facilitate the rise of China, particularly you know, US trade policy, US economic policy. Um, and I think there's sort of a growing realization that that has been a problem. Um, and it's not at all clear how we weigh the benefits of that sort of open world of the last couple of decades against China's rise. Um, but I think in not fully wrestling with those mistakes, you run the risk of going forward of simply repeating them. Um, and so I guess let me make just a few more final points um, and then I will, I will wrap up here. Um, I think, you know, one problem here is this is a diplomatic, perhaps extremely grand, grand strategy. I credit Ali hugely with having written a book that does not talk about basically military posture at all. Um, that's almost unheard of in the grand strategic literature. Um, I, among others, always talking about how great it would be if we could just get grand strategies to talk about the other tools of statecraft, and this does it. The problem is in outlining a purely diplomatic strategy, a strategy that focuses almost entirely on domestic renewal, um, I think it seeds some ground in that you can't quite tell exactly what is being proposed here. Um, so for example, there's a conversation talking about the pivot to Asia, you know, the need to retrench somewhat from the Middle East. Um, you know, there's not really a discussion of Europe. 
um, but no real line or no real discussion of where that line is, you know, exactly how that would be put into practice. So I, I do think that's somewhere where future work should go on this. Um, and then I think, you know, a final point, and I hate to be a real downer here, um, I do think the book, uh, perhaps because of Ali's sunny disposition, um, I think the book underestimates a little the political difficulties of putting something like this into practice. Um, I think it's, it's great in principle to talk about a foreign policy that is not reactive to every crisis, um, but public opinion can make that very problematic in a democracy. Um, and we have seen that repeatedly in years, in, the, in recent years, you know, whether it's the rise of ISIS back in, say, 2014, um, or whether it's the, the fact that Joe Biden's foreign policy has been extremely reactive, responsive to events rather than, than forward-leaning. Um, and, you know, it's one thing for, for experts and for this very well-thought-out argument to talk about how we need to recognize the limits of U.S. unilateralism I'm not as sure that the public recognizes those limits. And so that's a problem. Um, you know, and again, one where I don't necessarily think Ali has a, has a solution or should have a solution, um, but it's something we're all gonna have to reckon with if we want to put this kind of thing into practice. Um, so I will stop there, but again, it's a great book despite my complaints. I commend it to you all. Um, and in particular for making it not all about the military. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to the discussion with everyone. So I'll, I'll try and be brief. Uh, first, Eric, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here at Cato and you know, wonderful to see the rows of amazing books that uh, scholars here have, have written. And Ali's written a wonderful book. And I, you know, I really like the way Emma put it. I think this book is a, a really nice discussion, almost with the community, right? As you read it, it, it feels like you're talking to the foreign policy community in Washington. Um, and having a conversation. And, and frankly, in, in our world these days, that's all too rare, right? There's, there's a lot of yelling and not a lot of listening. And, and I think one of the things I like the most about the book is that you've really listened to a whole variety of different viewpoints, right? And tried to synthesize them. And I think you've done a really nice job of that. And, and I think that's all the more necessary if we're going to actually come up with a series of policies that can get bipartisan approval, um, which is, increasingly difficult these days. Um, so I really like that aspect of the book. And, and the one other point I wanna start out with is I think the framing is, is really important. And, and I think you got this basically right. So, you know, um, I would quibble with every word of the term great power competition. So I think we talk about great, but really when we talk about great power competition, we mean Russia and China. But I still don't think that those are the two countries that we should think of as great powers if we're going to rank all of the countries out there in the world. Um, and Ali, you know, you, you acknowledge this right off the bat, right? Um, which is not to say that um, you know Russia and China aren't the two biggest challenges at the moment for the United States. They absolutely are. Um, but I'm going to continue making the argument I've made for a while, which is that. Um, you know, we measure great powers in lots of different ways. One way we do it is, is through economic uh, measurements. And, you know, economically, uh, Russia is a little bit, depending on which numbers you're using, below Canada and South Korea this year, right? Canada and South Korea, we don't usually think of as great powers, 
Um, you know, it's way below Germany or the European Union as a whole, France, the UK, India, Japan, um, in terms of economics. And, and obviously economics is not all that matters. Um, I think a lot of people would have said, well, Russia is a major military power. And you know, now we've seen some of the challenges that Russia is having in that domain as well. So I think you know, when we've talked about great power competition the last few years, we've sort of keyed off of China and Russia and equated them as if they're somehow similar. And I think they're incredibly different and the challenges they're going to pose are very different. And, and I really like that in the chapters that Ali has where he goes through the China challenge and the Russia challenge, he addresses them separately rather than trying to mash them together. So I, I think that's a really important contribution. Um, another thing you do really well is, you know, talk about the great power part of great power competition. I think the power part is also problematic. And you note this, that at the end of the day, actually the competition isn't really necessarily about power, right? Not, not in the way we would think of it in realist terms. You know, the, the book is really talking about it in terms of order building, right? And, and order and power are of course related, but they're not the same. And so I think the book does a really nice job of saying, well, you know, ways that we would typically measure power, whether that's military power or economic power, they don't capture some big things that are really important today, right? The role of ideology. And we may disagree about how important ideology is in the competition. I, I think, you know, my personal view is that it's actually really important. Um, even if you don't want it to be important, that actually the main protagonists in the competition think it's important. So it's, it's going to be an ideological competition, whether we want it to be or not. But I, I think the book does a really nice job of getting into the ideological dimensions. Talks a little bit about technology and the role of technology, which is not something that we usually think of as an element of power, but I think is increasingly important. Um, so I like that you, you know, you don't only talk about the great powers. You also don't only talk about military or economic power. And the last part, which you, which you explained nicely uh, at the outset, is the word competition. And, and I think actually competition is kind of a lazy word because we don't have anything better at the moment. Opportunity is, is also a good word, but I'm not sure it fully captures exactly what we have in mind, right? At, at the end of a competition, you know, it's not really clear what your outcome is that you're seeking, right? And this is one thing that was really different in the Cold War, which is not to say that this is like the Cold War. It is incredibly different. Your, your chapter on this is excellent. Um, but at the end of the day, we actually had an objective in the Cold War, and you kind of knew what it was. And it changed a little bit from here and there. But you know, one of the phrasings was that we were hoping to seek the breakup or mellowing of Soviet power, right? And I'm not suggesting that we should necessarily seek the same thing with Russia or China today. But that was a much more direct conversation than the one that we have by avoiding these difficult discussions by simply saying, well, we're going to compete with no objective, right? And I, I think the book does a nice job of explaining why actually competition as a framework is not that helpful, right? In fact, you can't really measure how you're doing in a competition because a competition doesn't have an end state. Um, and I think in some ways that means that um, great power competition is a misnomer in, in every sense of all three words, right? It's not about the great powers. It's actually mostly not about power. And it's not really competition. You know, it shouldn't be a competition that's just going to go on forever. There, there should be an objective to it. Um, and, and, you know, the, the one quibble I'm going to have with you on your title is it's also not really America's, I think, right? I mean, if, from my perspective, and the book does a nice job of this, if this is America's great power competition, 
that's a failure, right? And it may be America's great power opportunity, but really this has to be about building cooperation with key allies and partners who you know, represent well over half of global GDP. These are really big, important countries. They may not always agree with the United States on everything, and that's completely fine. You know, I, I think we're in a multipolar system, and, and it's okay if sometimes the Indian government has different approaches to some of these issues than the American government. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's not really about an American competition. Um, and I think the book, in all of those elements, does a nice job of sort of piercing this basic logic that people have laid out about great power competition as if it's the answer to the world's problems, and you do a nice job of showing why it's, it's problematic in a lot of different ways. Um, the one area where I, I do want to push you, and it, it built on some of what Emma was saying, is I think you've done a really nice job at the end of the book. And, and for those of you that haven't read it, if you have a copy in front of you, um, the, the end of the book has eight different principles. Um, and I, I think there are principles with which uh, most of us will agree. I, I agree with 87% of your principles. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's one I might quibble with, which we can get to. But, but at the end of the day, these are good principles. Things like, you know, we should work with allies and partners, right? Um, the, the, the United States should invest in itself not because of China and Russia, but because it's actually good for the United States. That strength abroad actually builds on strength at home. All of these sorts of, of ideas. And they're things we've really heard in some cases the Biden administration embrace. And the area where I'll push you and, and others, you know, I'll be interested in your thoughts is, I think you're hard pressed to find people who disagree with the eight principles you've laid out. I think they are quite convincing. They're well argued in the book. The question isn't actually why we, what principles we should have. It's why we haven't adopted these eight principles. Why isn't that we haven't actually invested in the Asia Pacific as the most important region over the last 20 years? There are a lot of answers. I was in the Bush administration. I, I know a lot of them personally. Um, you know, why is it that we haven't invested in the right way with allies and partners? Why is it that our dom domestic renewal efforts are struggling to such a degree? And this is where I come back to something that Emma said, which I think is important, which is it's political dynamics here, I think, that are constraining the US and our ability to really do, execute the, this competition in the way that you suggest. Um, and, and you're always optimistic, and this book is wonderfully optimistic. Uh, but as, as a bit of a pessimist, I will say, um, I worry about our ability to get consensus around these principles, not because they don't make sense. They absolutely make sense. They are the right answers. But because actually over the last 10 or 20 years, we've shown very little ability to build around some basic, obvious principles of good statecraft. And so my question for you is, you know, how do you think about um, not just laying out these eight principles, which you've done nicely, but how do you think about actually convincing people that they should govern based on these principles and getting bipartisan agreement on some things that should be so self-evident and yet, you know, just look over the last couple of administrations or not. And, and I'll end with like one just crystal clear example of this, right? Um, so your, I think it's your last principle, talks about uh, investing essentially in the Indo-Pacific region and why, why this is so important. And look, I preach into the choir. I, I you know, study Asia strategy. And, um, but you know, if you look back over the history of the last decade, or last two decades, right? Every single US president has come in the last four 
and said that they are going to turn their attention to Asia. George Bush said it before 9-11. Barack Obama said it, right? He said it when he announced the pivot to Asia and Australia. Donald Trump and his team said they were going to do this too. And Joe Biden and his team have said they're going to do it. And yet, if you ask most experts, they will still say that we've basically not done anything over the last 20 years to actually make that promise a reality. It's not that it doesn't make good strategic sense. It's not that your arguments aren't entirely convincing. It's that for whatever reason, our political structures have made these kinds of strategic choices all the more difficult. So my, my big question for you, again, along the lines of, of what Emma asked is, you know, how do you actually turn these strong, you know, principled stances into policy realities? Um, and it's not actually your job to answer that question. It's, it's sort of the foreign policy community's job to do it. But I, I think by, by posing that question, we're getting to sort of the, the heart of the matter. Of not, it's not that we can't agree on what we should be doing for the most part. It's actually that we can't agree on how to actually get there. Um, and I think you've set a helpful roadmap, but I'll look forward to, to your discussion on those points. So thanks. All right. So we have about yeah, there we go. 45 minutes for questions and answers. I've uh, just to reiterate, if you are watching online and would like to submit a question, you can do so if you're watching on the Cato Institute website through the Slido window that should be on your screen just below the uh, video player. If you're watching on YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook, please use the hashtag CatoFP when you're submitting your question as well. Um, we'll also take questions from the audience. I will do, you know, moderator prerogative and ask my first one. Um, so this builds off of some critiques that Emma had, Ali, but um, I think that when it comes to the question of U.S. vital, you talk about U.S. vital interests a lot in the book, but you never enumerate what they are. Um, so what do you regard as American vital interests? And is it, and this, this relates also to the grand strategy question too, because how do you plan on Grand, grand strategy camps have very concrete answers on what is a vital interest and how you go about doing it. Um, and I'm curious about how do you see that? You described it at the outset that your book lays out a grand strategy. I'm not sure it does. Um, can you speak more to that? Yeah. So I, is this on? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, well, first of all, I, I was just telling uh, Emma now, I said that. Uh, just in, in hearing, you know, Emma's, you know, comments and Zach's comments, I always say to myself, if only I had had this kind of conversation before I started writing the book, it would be, it would be much, much better. Um, but first of all, again, uh, Eric, thank you, and, and Emma and Zach, thank you so much for, um, for really, really. I mean, I was furiously scribbling notes. I mean, I'll have to follow up with you to make sure I captured everything. Um, so one of the challenges I have, and I think it's one of the, um, and and you know, your, you know, the question that you that you pose, Eric, and and this also dovetails with. Um, you know, with points that both Emma and Zach made, I think that one of the re I think there's sort of two reasons why I, uh, in a way, kind of punted or didn't sort of address the question you know, fully. The first was the way that I conceptualized the book. So I think I, I believe I said this in my opening remarks. Um, so the book initially was just going to be a critique, and I think that if I had, uh, you know, perhaps if I had conceptualized the book as being sort of both a critique but also offering an alternative, I think if I had had this sort of more fulsome conception earlier on in the writing process, perhaps I would have 
you know, devoted more time. So basically, the the, the bulk of my my research, the bulk of the you know, the interviews, the bulk of the writing, um, was really devoted to setting forth the critique. And it was only as you know I started sort of shopping around the manuscript to folks that people said, hey, you know, you need to actually kind of answer some of these these specific questions. So I think that if I had started the writing process earlier, I think that I would have um, I would have de devoted more time to sort of to, to land landing on that question or to to answer. So one is just sort of the sort of the, the temporal dimension of writing this book, and I wish I had started earlier. Uh, there are two other thoughts I would give. You know, one is that, you know, I, just in, in full transparency and humility, I mean, I grappled with a lot of these questions. You know, when I, was, when I was writing the book, I said to myself, you know, in this situation, what should the United States do? In this situation, what should the United States do? And what I had thought of was I said to myself, okay, could I set forth a critique offer these eight principles, and then this, maybe this will be for sort of a, you know, the next book. Um, I, but I do think it is really important, and I think that Emma and Zach are absolutely right, um, that a subsequent, you know, if, if this book is kind of a conversation starter, then to continue the conversation in earnest, what I, I really take away from, from Emma's points, from Zach's points, and from yours is, um, maybe this is a conversation starter, but you do have to, one, sort of put a foot in the ground and say, okay, when push comes to shove, and America is tasked with making a really difficult situation in a time of crisis. Where do you come down? So you can have general principles, but to then say when the rubber meets the road, I think it's very, very important, as Emma and Zach both said, to, to land on that point. Um, and I grapple with a lot of those questions. I struggle with a lot of those uh, you know, questions when I was writing the book. I think the last reason I kind of, I shouldn't say punted maybe, but the last reason that I, I perhaps I, I ended with sort of an enumeration of principles, but didn't necessarily apply them in the most uh, sort of rigorous ways I should have is, uh, and we were talking about this a little bit beforehand, is um, I really wanted to try and, and the book, if, uh, if and when you read it, you'll see, it really is intended to be a conversation starter. It does leave a lot of these big questions unresolved. Um, what I'm hoping to do is, I, I feel like a lot of our conversations, and not just in the foreign policy world, I think that in the policy community more broadly, in the political community more broadly, they're becoming much more siloed, much more exclusive, much more shrill. And I wanted to write a book that basically says, look, uh, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers. I'm not going to be able to answer a lot of the big questions. But hopefully, this is a book that can bring folks who do subscribe to different IR schools, who do subscribe to different political ideologies to come together under sort of a bigger umbrella and have a conversation. So um, you're absolutely right. Uh, and and, and to, to Emma's and Zach's critiques, I think that for sort of the next iteration of, of this book, and just given developments in the world, I imagine that uh, there will be many opportunities to update the book. Um, but I do think that to make the book stronger for a next iteration, it should really say, one, um, is there a grand strategy? Is there sort of a coherent grand strategic alternative? Where would you, where would you settle on particular concrete questions? So if war breaks out in Taiwan, if uh, war with, you know, if war between Russia and Ukraine does involve, end up involving sort of a direct confrontation between the United States and Russia, you know, where would you make trade-offs? So I think one, you need to be more granular. I think that's absolutely right. And the second thing that I think, the second task that I think uh, another iteration of this book would need to do, and all of you got at this, um, and it really, really resonates with me, is it's one thing to enumerate principles in the abstract. How do you gain political traction for those? in this kind of really, really polarized environment, given dynamics on the Hill, just given acrimony between Americans who have different views, how do you take abstract principles and actually gain domestic political consensus? Um, I'll just make one last point, then I'll stop. You know, when I, uh, and I think that this tone hopefully comes out in the book, um, 
I do feel that you know China and Russia, they're, they're serious, multidimensional, formidable competitors. But I think they're manageable, somewhere between two and 10 feet tall. I'm actually much more worried, though, and I, I think that both of you were getting at this. I came away as when I submitted the final um, version of the manuscript to my editor, I came away far more concerned, honestly, about America's internal situation. And, and I'll be blunt. If the United States is not able to restore some sense of national purpose, some sense of national cohesion, then a lot of the questions about grand strategy and external competition, they become moot. You can't compete sustainably with China or Russia or think about what your objectives are if your internal consensus and cohesion are so broken. And so I I think that one of my biggest takeaways from from Eric, your question, and one of my biggest takeaways from from Eman Zak's comments is, one, you need to answer the hard questions in order to gain traction for principles. And two, you need to figure out in this increasingly ideologically acrimonious environment, how do you actually make them sell to Congress, to policymakers, and to Americans themselves? So maybe that'll be for, for, the, for, the, next, for the next installment, but I'm, I'm really, really grateful for those, uh, for those critiques. Okay, and then, so, so picking up on this, because a few people have asked it um, about the specific, you know, the domestic political question of, how do you get consensus? I would also add, what if the consensus is something that the Washington foreign policy establishment doesn't want to hear mm-hmm. uh, in terms of if, if the American people aren't as bought into, for example, the centrality of US defense commitments and the alliance network, how does that affect it? And I think Zach and Emma, I'd uh, love to hear from both of you on that. And Zach, especially the, as someone who was in an administration this, this question of prioritization, right? And, and what makes it so difficult when you have all those admins say, yes, we're gonna do this, yes, we're gonna do this. Do we sort of chase the ball too much because our vital interests are defined too broadly? No, I was gonna say, I passed the I guess I didn't specify. Zach, start. I'll give, I'll give a couple of uh, just just quick initial thoughts. I mean, yeah, okay, I think this is, you know, exactly the right question. And, and I think it's striking that in both parties, um, we're seeing similar debates, right? So we're seeing a debate um, in the Republican Party about the degree to which the U.S. should be engaged internationally, right? You know, a good example of this is look at the voting records on uh, Ukraine assistance, right? Um, big divergences within, within the Republican Party. Um, and I think at the moment, uh, we're not seeing as much divergence within the Democratic Party, but I think, I think it will reemerge in, in the not so distant future. Um, and, you know, I think in some ways, this is a question exactly as you phrased it about um, how expansive should we see our interests? Where are our vital interests, right? Um, what I think the last two presidents both agreed on, whether their teams agreed on this or not, is, is something that Emma's written a lot about, which is that um, it's clear that the presidents, Trump and Biden, don't think that the greater Middle East is as important as the foreign policy has thought over recent decades. And so, you know, both Trump and Biden have come in pretty explicitly saying, let's get out of various places, right? At some points it's been Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, you know, we'll see what happens with Iran here the next, the next couple of weeks or months. Um, what's really unclear though is how they prioritize Europe and Asia. And look, I'm an Asianist, so I, I say Asia first. That's, that's always gonna be my answer. <laughs> Um, 
But I think you see both parties struggling with this, right? And, and part of what's interesting is that actually the elites, especially in the Democratic Party, are much more comfortable in Europe than they are in Asia, right? This is where Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and others have really, really made a name for themselves. Um, and yet increasingly, I think there's a stronger argument that actually the US is needed in Asia. And, and Emma, I mean, I, I'll be interested in your thoughts on this, but I think you see a real division within the restraint camp, for example, right? With some restrainers saying, um, look, let's be sort of restrained everywhere. And others saying, well, you, you can't be restrained in Asia because there's just a power that's too great to allow that, right? We have to be more, more present in Asia. So I think these divisions are really tough. I don't have the answers. I mean, I, I, I think um, having an open debate about it is kind of the, the beginning of the, the discussion. Um, but I, I think it's gonna take us years and years to work through these issues. Yeah, I mean, so I guess let me just add a few things to that. I mean, I, I think, you know, the book does a really great job, I think, of just moving us past the, you know, it's great power competition and that's the answer paradigm, which is where DC has been in recent years. And, you know, to put it much more crudely than Ali does, like that's, I mean, that's equivalent to saying our foreign policy is the clash of the titans, right? And that's our guiding principle. It doesn't actually mean anything when you like look at it in practice. Um, but, you know, then when you actually do get down to the sort of the more difficult questions of what this actually means um, in terms of politics, you do, I think, run into a couple of these enduring problems. And, and I see them almost as, as two sort of distinct problems. One is um, that, you know, the public and elites um, are often not aligned on foreign policy. Um, and people express their displeasure over that sometimes at the ballot box. Um, and that goes both ways, right? We've seen people expressing their displeasure over sort of endless wars and the war on terror, um, you know, against sort of Washington elites who want a more hawkish policy on terrorism. Um, but we've equally seen voters pushing back on free trade right? Um, which, again, many elites in Washington would, would sort of support, which, you know, the administration, this administration certainly sees as a core component of its, its strategy. And so there, there is that tension. Um, and that's, that, so that is, you know, sort of the first problem. Um, and I'm not really sure how one resolves that, um, other than to say that I think the, on balance, you probably do have to listen to the public more when we're talking about broad trends than you do when we're talking about snap polls, right? I wouldn't pay a lot of attention to public opinion if people had asked what should Joe Biden do about gas prices next week, right? I wouldn't pay a lot of attention to that. Um, but I would pay attention if the polls start to show trends, you know, that the public is increasingly skeptical of military intervention overseas. That's a trend that we've seen. Um, and so that's where I feel like elites probably have to get more in line with the public. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a second problem too, which is um, the discussions over foreign policy, as Zach says, are not between the parties necessarily, they're within the parties. Um, and, you know, I think the, the solution, the ideal solution would be to move from sort of the bipartisan consensus that we had, the one that broke down, um, or is breaking down in foreign policy to move to something approximating a new bipartisan 
foreign policy approach so that you don't end up with you know massive partisan shifts back and forward between Republicans and, and Democrats. Um, but the problem with that is um, the coalitions on different issues look very different. And so as, as you allude to, you know, among the people who may call themselves restrainers, um, you know, there are plenty of those who would have been aligned with sort of are aligned with anti-war activists on questions in the Middle East, um, but are more aligned with China hawks on Asia questions. And so the fact that these um, these these debates are sort of so dynamic does make it harder to actually get to that consensus. Um, so that none of that was a solution. That was all additional questions. <laughs> All right, um, we'll take one. Oh, I just I just wanted to add one more just on the sort of questions. I mean, I think it's actually really, really telling that, and I was actually just thinking back to, in terms of foundational questions, I think a lot of which you know, Emma has presented and Zach has presented, you've presented, um, and it goes to show, I mean, you look at the, um, the uh, not the not the forthcoming issue of foreign affairs, but the, the previous issue of foreign affairs, what's on the cover? The cover is, what is power? I mean, the fact that we're, and it's telling, and that's a good thing, that we're, but it shows that even now um, we're grappling with some of the most foundational concepts. What is power? Uh, what is competition? And I think for me, um, just sort of by way of just sort of a, a personal uh, anecdote in terms of the writing process, and then, and then um, I'll stop, um, I was really struck as I, you know, as I embarked, and I think, Zach, you kind of got at this sort of looking at um, the constituent terms. Uh, if, the con if each of the constituent terms is kind of elastic, then the concatenation is going to be that much more elastic and flexible to the point that one of my big takeaways in writing the book was um, in order to think hard about these foundational questions, we also have to understand the foundational terminology. Are we even talking about the same concepts? You know, when we talk about power, competition, great strategy. So I, I think you know, something that I really have actually just taken away you know, this afternoon from Emma's comments and from Zach's comments is um, we really, before we can even think about the hard trade-offs, the, you know, what are vital national interests, you know, are we even using, in some cases, sort of the same vocabulary? Do we agree on even what these foundational concepts mean? So for all of the debate that's occurring, which is very, very rich and fulsome, I think it reveals actually how impoverished our understanding is of the, some of these foundational uh, terms and concepts. All right. So we'll take, I'm going to do one question from the audience in person and one from the virtual one. So... Uh, please raise your hand. We'll get a mic to you. Uh, yeah. Hi, guys. Thank you all for um, being here. Um, really excited to hear the debate continue, um, and I'm pleased with what I've heard so far. Uh, my name is Joe. I'm a sophomore at Georgetown, um, and I'm looking with my future specifically to look at the role of non-state actors and terrorist groups and politically motivated separatists. Um, so I'm interested to hear from Ali, where does your um, perspective and your paradigm fit in with that of um, groups who just don't have as much necessarily uh, military or economic power, but have this political or ideological power um, and are connected with these constituent communities? Yeah, it's, well, it's, a, it's a really, really good question. I mean, I, I should say in, in full candor, I mean, the book doesn't um, and I'm not going to pretend that it does. It, it doesn't really grapple with with that issue too much. Uh, but maybe that'll also be for sort of the for the next book. Um, but I will say, I mean, I know that you mentioned sort of non-state, you know, terrorist organizations, and you know, we've seen uh, 
for me, your question is sort of a reminder that I think we have a lot of work to do to sort of updating our, our theories of IR. And actually, your, your question just now, I was, I was recently rereading um, Anne-Marie Slaughter's book, The Chessboard and the Web. And, you know, one of her big arguments in the book is that our theories of international relations are predominant sort of paradigms in schools of IR. Um, they are they are shifting, but they still remain predominantly nation-state centric. They do still remain predominantly focused on uh, the chessboard. So she talks about the chessboard versus the web, and she makes an argument in her book, which I think is a very uh, an increasingly important and compelling one, that we need to think more about the power that non-state actors wield. Uh, how do we update our frameworks to think about non-state actors? Where do they fit in? But we've seen more and more evidence that non-state actors they can very much affect the priorities of states. So. September 11th, which you know has reoriented U.S. foreign policy now for well over two decades, it was a, a non-state uh, non-state actor uh, that committed that act of terrorism on September 11th. We see the role that uh, hackers, cyber hackers, play in destabilizing economies. Um, and I would so one, uh, it's it's all a, it's a way of sort of avoiding your question since I don't have a good answer. But it is to say that one, we need to update our I think our theories of IR. We need to update sort of the way that we think about the world to incorporate those actors more. And I would also say, just sort of uh, it's kind of a question that I've been grappling with is, in addition to incorporating uh, the role of non-state actors, um, how do we strike the right balance? And I'd be really curious, you know, what Emma and Zach think about this. Um, how do we think about um, the balance between managing great power frictions, which are primarily focusing on tensions between states, and managing transnational challenges that I would, I, I think, intuitively require some baseline of cooperation uh, between states? And I think that we have a tension in which states say we're competing, uh, and if we cooperate on these transnational challenges, are we perhaps signifying weakness? Are we appearing overly conciliatory? So. Don't have a good answer to your question, but it is to say it's a very important question. So how do we update our IR frameworks to incorporate non-state actors more? And how do we, I think, also strike that balance more between managing great power frictions and, and transnational challenges? But just que more questions. Uh, no good answers, but more, more questions. Um, unless you all had anything to add. Yeah, all right. Let me add one thing. Okay. Um, I, I will not go on a rant about how transnational actors have national backing a lot of the time, um, but, but I will sort of throw something else on the pile to consider, which is, um, you know, for very obvious reasons, you have focused in this book on Russia and China as the two preeminent sort of emerging threats in the international system. Um, but I also think we need to be talking more about other p potential power centers mm. in the international system, right? I want to hear more about India, Japan, South Korea, Australia. I want to hear more about the European Union and its latent power. Mm. Um, right now, it's not a military power, but it has the financial and industrial heft to be one if it wants. I, I want to hear more about that um, because I think, again, I think one of the places where this great power competition frame has, a, has sort of foreign policy thinkers stuck in blinders is that we are looking at just these few states um, when there's a much broader, if we are really headed for multipolarity, then there's going to be a much broader variety of states that will matter. I'm going to read, uh, combine two questions from the online audience that are on a similar theme, which Ali addresses in the book about the idea of playing great powers, China or Russia, off against one another. Um, so uh, Michael Makita asked, uh, it would appear the Biden admin is attempting to assist the European Union in defeat of Russia at the same time that it is needlessly antagonizing China. Against the backdrop of increasing deglobalization, would it not serve our ends better to rein in some of these initiatives? And uh, someone named Dav said, 
will cooperating with Russia and China in the future to avoid large conflicts necessitate the U.S. accommodating China's desire to swallow Taiwan and Russia's desire for buffer territory between itself and NATO? Uh, I, I see this as kind of like the classic sphere of influence question, right? Like, could, in a world where great powers are in a more competitive state, does establishing sphere of influence, spheres of influence help prevent them from directly engaging in confrontation with one another? So, um, Ali, I know that you talk about these things specifically in the book a bit, but I'm sure that uh, Zach and Emma, you guys could add to it too, so. Yeah, I'll just offer a, um, I just wanna actually offer, since you mentioned sort of both sort of China and Russia and you know, sort of the relationship between them, I, I wanna just sort of offer sort of a brief thought on just the state of the relationship and, the, and then I'll, I'll pass, the, uh, pass the mic. Um, I think that there's been, and I, and I think that actually since the, really since the end of the Cold War, uh, there's been a lot of concern among uh, U.S. foreign policy thinkers about the potential for, uh, you know, Sino-Russian convergence, a deepening Sino-Russian entente. You know, you look at uh, the late Big Brzezinski. He writes, I think it's in 1997. He writes a book called *The Grand Chessboard*, in which he says that sort of the ultimate kind of nightmare for U.S. foreign policy would be this entente between China and Russia, with potentially Iran uh, becoming sort of a, a third, uh, a third uh, leg of the stool. Uh, and I think that. And on a bipartisan basis, I think Republicans and Democrats alike have thought about, are there ways of prying China and Russia apart? And I think that there's a sense, it, there seems to be a growing recognition that it's probably going to, if China and Russia, uh, and they certainly they have a very, they have a strained history, I think that they do have some inbuilt differences. If their relationship is, is going to weaken, it's probably not going to be because of external US pressure. It's likely going to be because some of their their own misgivings uh, kind of come to the fore. Uh, and there are some misgivings. So if you are, take Central Asia, is I think sort of an interesting example. Uh, when the United States withdrew from Afghanistan, there was a lot of schadenfreude in both Beijing and Moscow saying, after 20 years, you weren't able to defeat uh, the Taliban, they now are back in power. There was a lot of crowing in Beijing and Moscow, but then as the months wore on, that schadenfreude, it gave way to a little bit more circumspection because, um, the threat of instability, the threat of terrorism, and if you are, and because China and Russia, they don't necessarily have the same vision for the region. So China wants to reduce the role of India in Central Asia. Russia wants to strengthen its relationship with India. Uh, if you look at uh, you know, Russia as well, uh, it's more beholden to China now than it was prior to its invasion of Ukraine. And I'm sure that you know, Russia wanting to be seen as a great power, it probably is not comfortable with being seen as an increasingly junior partner um, to China, so there are certain, you know, there are certain misgivings between, uh, you know, China and and Russia. But I think trying to pry them apart. Just you know, one you know, one last point. I do think it's sort of interesting now that these discussions about how we might pry China and Russia apart. Even though I think that there's sort of a, a broad and growing recognition that unilateral U.S. efforts to that end are likely not going to bear fruit. But it's interesting though that I would say prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think that a lot of the discussion had centered on. What can the United States do to, to loosen Russia's embrace of China? And now it seems that increasingly the discussion is how do we loosen China's embrace of Russia? It's sort of a very interesting kind of reversal of the discussion. But again, I think that if there is going to be any uh, uh, sort of mellowing out of that relationship or, or, or weakening of that relationship, it's likely going to be because Chinese leaders and or Russian leaders change their present calculus. But I, I think that external pressure is likely to drive them sort of closer into each other's embrace. But that's just sort of a thought on the state of the relationship. Um, uh, so Ali, I completely agree with that. I, I think, um, you know, if you look at the Cold War history, right, from 
1958 on it. It wasn't U.S. action that drove the Sino-Soviet split. It was, you know, it was really Soviet and Chinese action. Um, and I think that's going to be the same case here. And it's, it's hard for me to imagine it happening with Putin and Xi both still in power. So I, I think there's not a lot the U.S. can do to encourage the split. Now, there may be things we can do to push them more closely together. Um, and we should probably try and avoid those things to the extent we can. But I, I very much agree with your assessment. Um, the one other point I was going to make is that I, I think you know, this broader question of, of spheres of influence, um, there are a lot of, so we may have some different views on this up on the stage, uh, which is, makes for good debate. Uh, I'll give you mine, which is that I, I think there's, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that if we had given uh, Russia you know, a wider berth, that necessarily the Russians would have been perfectly satisfied. I, I don't, I, they might have been more satisfied, right? Or Putin might have been more satisfied. Um, I think China is a is a harder case in some ways because Taiwan is such an, a unique issue, right? Um, but my personal view is this is much more of an academic debate than a political one. There is no way that the United States is going to give China and Russia the wide berth that they would want, in part because we live in a world where we have alliances that are crystallized at their borders. And those alliances aren't going away anytime soon, at least when China and Russia are posing a threat to the allies directly. So I think we are locked into a world where we're not going to be able to give them a sphere of influence, whether it's a good idea or not. And you know, just last point on this, which is that um, there's a book uh, by Tom Wright over at the Brookings, who used to be over at the Brookings Institution, which sort of makes what I think of as the, the strongest case recently against spheres of influence. And his argument is that at the end of the day, global order is actually made up of regional orders. And so if your regional order is sort of whatever you know, great regional powers want, they get, then you actually don't really have a global order to speak of. Um, now, we can debate this issue, but what we can't debate is the fact that Tom is over at the White House in the job that would typically write the national security strategy. So I think it's pretty clear where the political class is on this issue. I, I just don't think we're going to give China and Russia spheres of influence, even if it were a good idea, and I don't think it would be a good idea. You know, I guess, let me just say a few things about this. One is that I think the spheres of influence debate is often framed wrongly. It's framed as a sort of a normative or moral question of are we going to let China and Russia have spheres of influence? Um, you know, and people often talk about Yalta, right? They talk about Churchill and Stalin dividing up Europe, and that's how you get spheres of influence, right? Something a great power gives another great power. Um, but for most of history, that's not really what a sphere of influence is. A sphere of influence is actually more of a fact than anything else. It is a place where one great power is unwilling to challenge the predominance of another great power. Um, and what we are in right now, the moment that we're in right now, I think, is quite uniquely dangerous in some ways because we are transitioning from a period in which most of the world was a US global sphere of influence, um, in many ways right up to the borders of states like Russia and China. And we are transitioning um, into a world where that is not necessarily the case. Um, but the US, you know, for historical reasons, is still extremely close into those powers that are now thinking about how they're going to challenge 
that US presence. Um, and I think we can get into a huge argument on the specifics on Ukraine or Taiwan or whatever, but I think in both cases, what we're seeing is roughly the same phenomenon. Two powers unhappy with the current order, challenging it in the area closest to their borders um, and seeing how the United States reacts. Um, and so, you know, you may be right that we are locked into this, but if so, it is an extraordinarily dangerous place to be. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think I will just say on the book, you know, spheres of influence, that's something I did want to see a little more on in here, because I think, you know, those, I referenced those sort of difficult questions. That's just one of those difficult questions. Um, and I would have liked to have seen a little more on it. All right, I'll take a question from the, or two from the audience. Uh, so first you miss, and then you, sir. And if you could say your name and affiliation, if you have one, uh, that'd be great. Thank um, my you. name is Kathleen, and I um, live in the region, live in the area. Um, no official affiliation that I care to share, I think. Um, Ellie, my question is for you. How did you go about um, your research? Did, did you, um, is it just from information you've had from years of, of studying this, or did you speak with, um, involve your colleagues, let's say, for instance, in Taiwan, to get a perspective? No, thank you so much for for the question. So I uh, really it, I, I don't I wish I had a, a more uh, a more elegant answer, but basically just I uh, I had a deadline uh, by which <laughs> by which I had to to submit the book, and I just, I read as much as I could. Um, I read as much as I could, and um, I spoke with, and I spoke with um, a lot of folks, sort of folks who had you know previously served in government in the U.S. government, folks who um, you know weren't in the U.S. government at the time, but are, are currently um, in the government, and as many practitioners, as many you know, scholars as as I could, and um, what I and I think the reason is that when I set out to write the book, I realized that even though, and this is sort of one of I think the paradoxes of great power competition. When I set out to write the book, I figured that just given its ubiquity, I figured that ubiquity means that everyone would have a shared understanding of what it means. And so my thought was, okay, let me first figure out, you know. So I thought first, okay, great power competition is this, and then sort of set out to write a critique. But I realized very quickly as I started researching and talking with people that there isn't actually sort of necessarily sort of a, a neat, clear, uh, shared conception of what it means and also what its implications are for U.S. foreign policy. So I really just tried to absorb as much material as I, as I could uh, that, that had been written on the topic. I tried to speak with um, and, and I try to speak with a very wide range of individuals, individuals who are very strong proponents of great power competition as both a descriptive and a prescriptive framework, because I, if you're going to critique, uh, if you're going to critique a concept, it behooves you, you have a responsibility to make sure that you're presenting it accurately. So I try to speak with a number of individuals who are proponents of, who are proponents of the construct. Um, I try to speak with individuals who are more critical, and then I try to speak with individuals who I think we're just more curious about the construct, didn't necessarily have strong views uh, one way or the other, but really just um, as much reading as I could do, uh, sort of within a reasonable time frame, as uh, speaking with as many people as I could, and and hopefully uh, to to present a, a case in the book that's uh, it's considered, uh, even if one you know disagrees with, it, but hopefully that it's it's somewhat considered and it's it's reflective of of, of a reasonable degree of research and interviews. Um, so we'll go group two. Uh, so you sir, you had your hand up before, and you sir over here, and each of you ask, and then we'll get their feedback. Uh, uh, thank you for a uh, terrific event. And uh, uh, my name is Kensuke Abe, uh, Marvin America Corporation. And uh, so my question is to all uh, three panelists. Uh, so when do you think? Uh, when do you uh, think about the grant strategy? Is there any uh, specific 
uh, horizon or specific uh, number or how many years or how many decades uh, should the U.S. Uh, should 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 you think should uh, the U.S. Uh, ground strategy be? Uh, the reason I want to ask uh, the reason I ask this question is uh, so it seems to me that for example the Chinese ground strategy if they have it might be longer than the U.S. ground strategy because they have two 100 goals, which I think it is not really the 100 years, but it seems to me it's uh, uh, longer than the U.S. ground strategy. And uh, the Cold War uh, long, uh, being long uh, more, uh, maybe about half century. So I think the uh, ground strategy should be longer than the, this current or the, the recent uh, strategy. So I want to ask this sure. question to you, yeah. Great, thank you so much. And you, sir. Uh, Stanley Kober, former Cato Research Fellow. Um, you may have noticed that we are having difficulty recruiting in our armed forces. Now, during the Vietnam War, people chanted, what if they gave a war and nobody came? We may find out. <laughs> Can you be a great power if your young people of military age don't want to join the armed forces to defend their country, even after the greatest attack it suffered in its history? I, I will add on to this because someone in the, in the digital audience asked a very similar question to yours, sir, about um, Don uh, Baldivin asked, do you believe that the U.S. has or will have adequate military resources to support U.S. foreign policy in meeting the challenges of competition over the next 20 years? Um, so one question on time horizons and grand strategy, another on how do we, how do you get the military resources if your grand strategy is going to be very, very sweeping, and, if, and is it possible at all? I'll just, I mean, both uh, really, really difficult and, and important questions. I'll, um, I'll offer maybe just sort of a brief reaction to the first question and then, uh, and then you know, pass, the, you know, pass the mic. Um, so in terms of, you, and when you specifically, Eric, you mentioned sort of time horizons in your question as well. Um, if you haven't already read a, a book by David Edelstein, so David Edelstein, he talks about, um, he thinks about U.S. grand strategy and he talks about sort of great power or grand strategy, and, but specifically through sort of this temporal lens. And so... Um, what decisions do, uh, if countries take a longer time horizon, what types of grand strategic choices do they make if they take a shorter time horizon? But, but David Edelstein's book, um, I think it's called Thinking? What, what is it? Uh, it's not thinking in time. Not, no, not thinking in time. It's time. thinking. Yeah, I think it just has time horizon. Time, I think, yeah. it's, I, I think it has time horizon. Over the horizon. Over the horizon, yes, over the horizon. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, but I, I, would, I would commend um, you know, his book. So he talks about this dimension. Just one point that I would make in terms of the, you know, sort of maybe not sort of answering sort of how many years, you know, should U.S. grand strategy encapsulate, but I, I would make a point that regardless of sort of how many, you know, how many years or how many decades a, a country can think into the future or does think into the future, I think that it's important to, one, whatever sort of, no matter sort of your best laid plans, there invariably are going to be surprises that intrude, crises that intrude, shocks that sort of disrupt your thinking. So one is, I think that any grand strategy that you articulate, it's going to have to, it's going to be beset by, you know, crises. And so um, 
it's just sort of one anecdote that comes to mind. And, and you know, Zach mentioned uh, you know, his, his uh, time in the Bush administration. It's very interesting. So the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, um, it too came into office thinking it wanted to, to pivot or rebound to Asia. And, uh, and it, spent its, it spent a lot of its time, its first few months, thinking about how to reorient U.S. foreign policy towards Asia. And then, of course, September 11th happened. And so it dramatically reoriented U.S. foreign strategy. So I think one point is that just however long your time horizon is, just realizing that uh, no matter how thoughtful your plans are, that there are going to be crises and shocks that beset it. Um, and then the other point I would make, uh, and you mentioned you know, China, is you know, whatever one thinks its long-term strategic objectives might be, I think you have to think not only about what its objectives are in, in theory, what, what its intentions might be in theory, but um, how is it going to execute? What capabilities will be able to, to, to bring to bear in service of those objectives? And I think that I would at least argue that with, with China, whatever you think its objectives are, however vaulting that you think that they might be, um, I think that in some ways that they're demonstrating that this narrative of the kind of the, the decades-long strategic acumen, I, I think that some of their diplomacy has kind of undercut that narrative. So if you rewind the clock to, say, the first quarter of 2020, and I, I talk about this a little bit in the book. So in the first quarter of 2020, you remember the narratives at the time. The narrative was that China had contained COVID at home. It had contained the economic fallout at home. And the United States, by contrast, it was seen as a sort of flailing and floundering and completely hapless. Um, I think that given that discrepancy in how the United States and China were perceived, I think that if China were truly thinking in grand strategic terms and if it were truly as far-sighted as I think um, you know, many observers believe it to be, um, I think that it would have probably taken certain different steps. I think that it could have taken certain steps to stabilize some of its relationships in its immediate neighborhood. Um, it could have made more progress on getting this investment agreement with the European Union across the finish line. But it ended up taking a number of steps during the, during the pandemic that I think actually really estranged it significantly from a number of advanced industrial democracies. Now, those advanced industrial democracies collectively are not as predominant as they were at the turn of the century, but they still do wield the balance of global power. And so if you're thinking in the long term, if you're thinking ahead, you want to think about what steps you can take to stabilize your relationships with that core uh, of countries. So I think that China, yes, it's more economically central today than it was prior to the pandemic. Uh, it's, I think, a far more formidable competitor than the Soviet Union was in many ways. But it's not clear to me that even if it does think in, in the long term, that it's necessarily always conducting itself diplomatically in ways that would reflect or bespeak a sort of a long-term strategic acumen. I'll throw another book recommendation on the pile, which is that last year um, Oxford put out a handbook of grand strategy, um, which is like 500 pages long, but it has great essays on everything from time horizons to how does grand strategy get made, how does it change, does it really exist? So like, I would highly recommend that. It's, it's really helpful for sort of providing an overview of a lot of these issues. Um, and then, you know, the other thing I guess I would sort of add to, to what Ali said a minute ago was, um, you know, it's really important not to just think about, you know, the US and its capabilities to sustain its military presence or, or you know, whether these things are possible. It's really important to think about the trends in, in the international economy and in international military strength um, and to think about the ways in which that balance could be brought back you know, so right now we are in a situation, and I'm, I'm sure Zach may disagree with me on this, Ali may disagree with me on this, we're in a situation where the US does far more than most of the other advanced industrialized democracies that we consider to be allies. Um, our power is in relative decline, um, but we could 
conceivably encourage many of these states to step up and help to bring that balance back towards the median a little. So I, I think we need to think more about sort of not just our own resources, but using sort of all the resources available to us. Yeah, Zach, particularly on your comments on the uh, issue of, you know, the defense question. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so I think I, I very much agree with Emma's point that, you know, it, it would be good if other countries stepped up more. I think the we've learned a couple lessons, at least I've learned a couple lessons watching this debate. So one is I, I worked at NATO for a bit um, and I was there when Robert Gates came and gave, gave this pretty famous set of remarks where he excoriated the Europeans about not spending more on defense and they nodded politely and took him very seriously and then watched him leave and did absolutely nothing different, right? Um, I think what drives defense spending levels is threat. And so when you have a greater sense of threat, you get more spending. When, um, and, and you know, I think the Trump administration had this theory, which is that if the US was less present, then there would be, in effect, more of a threat to the Europeans and they would have to do more. And the answer is they didn't do much more. When the Russians seem to be on the doorstep in a much more serious way than others expected, then the Europeans, like the Germans in particular, have committed, committed more. So I think we're in this tough spot where actually the US has less leverage on this issue than I think we'd like to imagine. Um, and so my guess is that the only way we could really get the Europeans to do a lot more would be essentially to withdraw from Europe um, and give up the leverage that we have, which I, I think is still useful to us. Um, and absolutely, there's some people in Washington who suggest doing that. Um, my view is, I don't think we're at the resource constraint point where we have to do zero in Europe, right? And I think the leverage we get over the Europeans is significant through NATO and other constructs. But, but we could have a good debate on that. Um, I think the, you know, this does tie into the couple of questions about, about defense spending levels. And I'll just say, um, first, if the United States needs to get more people in the military, it can pay more, right? So we, I think we have a lot of levers Pulling those levers is costly, right? Absolutely. Like, um, if we doubled the pay of military uh, members, then that would be really costly. We could afford fewer of them. And then we might have a debate about whether the military is big enough. But I, I would say, I think um, we're going to see the military start pulling those levers, and they have in some specific subfields where they're really low on numbers. Um, I think we'll see more of that. Um, there is a point at which you can't easily do that because you have to make really difficult trade-offs, um, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, and just one final real quick question to Abhisan, which is, or response to Abhisan's question, which is, um, so I think the question about the time horizon is the exact right question to ask, but it's not actually a question about the number of years. It's about whether you're thinking about a steady state or an end state. And I think what this administration has done is say, we shouldn't worry about an end state. We should worry about the steady state. And in some ways, actually, Ali, I think that's what your book does too, right? You say, don't worry about where your competitor is gonna end up. Worry about what you're doing to strengthen yourself now. And I think this is a really important debate. It's a debate that we actually haven't had but I think is actually the core of a lot of the strategic issues we're facing. So I'm, I'm glad you raised it, but I, I think it's one that we should um, discuss much more forthrightly. All right, well, very helpful, big blinking uh, countdown clock is rapidly approaching <laughs> zero. So 
Thank you all in person for coming to this discussion. I hope this has enticed you to purchase the book. Um, it's very good. Uh, thank you also to everyone on the online audience for submitting your questions. I'm sorry I wasn't able to get to every single one of them, uh, but there were a lot coming in. So thank you all very much for coming. And thank you, Ali and Zach and Emma for providing such great comments.